Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. You see young children essentially dehumanized, um, commodified, uh, often physically abused, often ritually humiliated. You need to create a reappraisal about what the children's sport experience should be. Right, so big welcome to Stuart Armstrong, who is a very special guest of ours today and coming to us all the way from the U of K. And uh, Stuart is the head of coaching in England, and that is for Sport England, which is the sort of governing body of sport in the UK. And Stuart, I know you've got a big background. You've worked for World Rugby and literally from the start, having looked at your LinkedIn profile, um, you've been involved in sports and sports coaching and sports development pretty much most of your career. Yeah, that, that's right, and uh, good to good to be with you, uh, Mike and Ross. Good to uh, good to have the conversation. Um, yeah, um, I was for, uh, well. I've not been fortunate enough, like Ross, to be involved with world rugby, but I was involved with England rugby, um, which on some occasions felt like world rugby, but uh, it, it definitely wasn't. Um, yeah, and you're right. I've been uh, been very fortunate enough to have a, a career in sport. Funnily enough, didn't always want to want to do that. At one stage, I was going to be a graphic designer, but my art teacher caught me on the uh, hockey field for the 14th time when I should have been in his lesson and said, you should have a career in sport. And so it turned out to be pretty good advice. Just tell us a little bit about how Sport England fits into the sporting uh, sort of uh, sphere in England. What is, what is its role and what is its mandate? It's, it's what's known as a sports council. So there are four sports councils in, uh, in the UK, one in Northern Ireland, Scotland, Wales and England. Sport England's responsibility predominantly is to grow participation in all forms of sport and physical activity. So that includes what you might refer to as sort of the classical sports, if you like, you know, rugby, football, cricket, netball, hockey, taekwondo, etc. all those sorts of things. And then also, but we're also broader than that, including all forms of physical activity. So we might do things like group exercise, personal training, walking, cycling, all these sorts of different, different elements that form part of the recreational mix. And the main role of the organization predominantly is to be a distributor of government funding, whether it comes from taxpayers funding or from from funding through our national lottery to uh, and we essentially work via a range of different organizations whether they're governing bodies local partners or, or specialist agencies for example uh, to invest in them to be able to support the growth of physical activity across the nation we do that in both the participation realm and also in the talent realm now today we're talking you to specifically about uh, coaching of children and, and and young young adults into the sport. What, what you've said in your LinkedIn profile, and I, I think uh, I just want to get some clarity as to what this actually means, because Ross and I tried to discuss this as meant. It said strategic lead for workforce transformation at Sport England. Is is there a sort of a layman's version of what what that is? <laughs> I wish there was, but I'll try my best. Uh, yeah, so I mean, I originally, I originally started as the head of coaching, and I still have that kind of as part of my overview. But of course, workforce in sport includes far more than just 
those at the front line providing the coaching experiences um you know workforce includes people in clubs who uh you know have to you know who are like you know the the treasurer you know the uh or the person who even you know is there putting out the um you know the, the bibs and the and the cones or, or all those sort of stuff but equally there's also sporting organizations have you know a large body of professional staff uh most of whom are often a little bit under-resourced um sometimes uh under supported under loved um underpaid and so um you know one of the things that we're working on as well is to support them uh in the roles that they have because it's really important how they go about doing their work particularly if we want to try and open up sports and make it more inclusive and then at, at the same time as well there's a lot of work to be done around the leadership of sports organizations and as well within um their boards and so governance is another, another part of that so um we're working all the way across the layers if you like um across across the landscape supporting the people who make it happen so when you say that you're head of coaching for sport england does that mean you're essentially the, the coach of the coaches is that a short way of saying it to a certain extent but it's it's slightly more nuanced in the sense that my role is to oversee policy related to how coaches are developed and educated so uh, my primary role when i first came into the organization five years ago was to write sport england's first ever coaching strategy we called it the coaching plan for england and that set out uh, all of the key elements that would need to take place to enable coaches to be better supported uh, better resourced able to do a, you know able to do the job that they all kind of want to do whether they're voluntary or paid uh, our workforce of coaches in sport, uh, in england is uh, around about 2.6 million uh 1.7 million of which are entirely voluntary and so how they're supported is a massive massively important thing because one of the things that we found both both pre-pandemic and post-pandemic is actually quite a lot of volunteer coaches are beginning to leave and that's a major challenge because of course without them you can't provide some of the experiences so tackling that uh, exodus is a major part of where we might go in the future Right, so and that's because um, the the actual production of coaches is the mandate of the federations that fall under Sport England. So, for instance, England Rugby are the ones who are tasked with the education and development of their own coaches. But within your overarching strategy, do I have that correct then? Yeah, correct. So yeah. Uh, every organisation has its own mandate towards mm. the development of its own workforce and every organisation has slightly different requirements and needs. So it does need to have that nuanced perspective. And likewise, on the one hand, you've got England Rugby. That's a significantly resourced organisation over and above any of the funding that we might provide. But there are other organisations that are far smaller. Let's take parkour as an example, with an ex with a with a fairly extensive workforce of people who actually support people to do parkour safely. But the resources for that organisation are far smaller. So how we can allocate support for them is very is very different. Some of that's done through external agencies and what have you. But the the plan itself maps out, if you like, the ingredients of what you might want to do and how you might want to go about developing your workforce to support them better. And it sounds like a lot of the stuff that you're involved with obviously is very involved at grassroots level amongst children and teenagers and that sort of thing. And because that's where I guess where a lot of sports have to build that sort of groundswell of talent that inevitably moves up through the ranks. Is that a, is that a fair assumption? Uh, certainly, because it, you know, one of the, I guess, fundamental beliefs is that if you want to or if it is important for both the health of the nation the economic prosperity of the nation 
um, and for, you know, kind of personal well-being, if you like, as a number of outcomes that sport and physical activity can, can contribute to helping young people to sort of build what you what is commonly referred to as say a sporting habit or a physical activity habit is important and so those early experiences really matter and providing you know a rich diet if you like of possible experiences so that young people can find the right kind of physical activity for them uh, and that's that so that's part of that so we're definitely focused there but not entirely you know um, we we have a big mandate to try and address inactivity so that's often those people who maybe ha have had a adult who've had a previously very poor experience whether that be at school or elsewhere and finding a means by which to you know address some maybe some common held beliefs and stereotypes they have around um around physical activity to bring them back um the probably most famous example of that is uh, we, we've been running a campaign for several years now called This Girl Can, which is very much targeted at female underrepresentation in physical activity, which aims to tackle those stereotypes and make physical activity part of a, a normal part of a woman's life, as opposed to seen as something sort of slightly separate for, the only, for only those who are athletic or sporty. And now moving into that sort of um, space around young young talent, I know here in South Africa that we've um, over the last few years, maybe the last two decades, we've seen a, a like an erosion of sport at school because you know the, back in the day in the eighties and the early nineties, uh, you know, sport in school was part of the curriculum. Um, the, you were always required to do a sport, but now it's becoming less and less of a requirement. Is is that the same challenge in the UK where the challenge is actually getting people to be active because maybe twenty years ago they were more active or they're more active now um I, well i would say we probably face similar challenges in the sense that i think for those of us who work and genuinely believe in in the positive benefits that sport and physical activity can bring to young people we feel that um physical activity has never really been given the prominence or importance it has within the schooling curriculum. You know, there is a mandatory requirement for children to have, I think it's something like, from memory anyway, I think it's something like two hours a week of physical activity. Um, we believe that to be really quite, you know, uh, unsatisfactory. You know, there needs to be far more of that given how much time children spend in the school day. Plus, there's so much research out there that shows that there is a really positive benefit to children being physically active from their other academic pursuits. And so actually, even if you were just using physical activity as a means by which to develop young people academically, there is strong links to those two things, you know, significant body of research as far as that's concerned. We believe that physical activity should be seen as an end in its own right, of course. You know, we think it's important for children to be able to express themselves physically and to take all of the positive health benefits because many children really don't get access to sport physical activity beyond what they get in the school day. But we think there are so many, it's almost like a double, perfect double whammy that, you know, you could also then positively benefit in academic outcomes outcomes as well. I'm going to bring in Professor Ross Tucker, as usual, uh, with us here today. And Pref Prof, I mean, what's interesting about this is we've done podcasts on this in the past about how to build champions, but this isn't necessarily always just about at the top tier. It's also about activity levels and people's lifelong association with activity. Yeah, and unfortunately, and I'm sure Stuart will agree, is that those two imperatives have been flipped. And so when you try to sell activity or sport to pretty much anyone, I think especially to parents, because they're often the ones making the purchase decision, as it were, on behalf of their kids, 
it's quite an easy sell to say, do this and your kid will be a champion. Mm. It's a bit more difficult to say, do this and your child will grow up to have a lifelong positive relationship with activity and be a healthy 66-year-old because people don't really value that. And it's, it's amazing to me because as Stuart said, you solve almost every problem with activity because the health benefits, the lifestyle benefits, the academic benefits, they all wrapped up in the same thing. So you start at one point and you kill six birds with one stone, but it's the most difficult stone to <laughs> get people to pick up and throw. And I suppose where there's real fascination is for Stuart is how do you juggle the message of performance that people value and the message of activity that people perhaps devalue? Um, well, yeah, I mean, if you've got any answers to that question, I'm all ears. <laughs> mm. um, having, having said that, um, there is one of the things that I mentioned earlier on the campaign, This Girl Can, and um, one of the things that that campaign has been, you know, roundly, um, uh, I guess, positively received and, and has been, you know, lauded for is its, its ability to properly address some of the i guess what you could refer to as culturally resilient beliefs that had sort of begun to permeate around female female physical activity and and what it has done is at the very least i mean it's hard to be able to then make a causal link between a campaign and physical activity numbers increasing but what it has done is create a different kind of conversation mm. amongst whether it's you know through via social media or through the media about you know, um, gender roles and also different people's perceptions towards physical activity and create almost like a reappraisal. And I think we've learned some valuable lessons through that experience as a, as a means by which to approach a challenge such as um, how do we create a reappraisal about what is important in children's physical activity experiences? And we're actually, um, it's, it's a very live area because we're working on it right now uh, around this almost creating a reappraisal that sorts to, I guess, readdress the, what, what has become what I think a fairly dominant performance narrative in sport and physical activity, i.e. you do sport, why? to either win something or become something and or you know to win a medal or become a olympic athlete or become a champion or become a professional footballer or rugby player or whatever it might be and what we're be beginning to try and challenge is to say strangely enough if your perspective on engagement is purely driven by an outcome that may work that may work counterproductively towards your goal as opposed to if you engage in sport physical activity through the fact that it, ha it it can provide you with a positive experience that also has other lifelong benefits, strangely enough and counterintuitively, that probably will bring about a, a positive outcome long – is more likely to bring about a positive outcome long term. And so if you like, what we want to do is almost like begin to reframe the debate, mm. begin to get people to ask different questions. And that's going to be an interesting challenge for us. Well, I was, as you were speaking, I was just thinking that even even the way I phrased that question is actually in a way contributing to this this false binary where people are having to choose. I go left in direction A for high performance success or I have to choose to go right in direction B for long life in sport and health and, and, and well-being success and you spoke about it being counterintuitive but I think even even our relationship you and I met because of conversations around changing that narrative 
because it really has emerged that, in actual fact, the, the practices you do with young children today in order to achieve both those goals in 10 years, 20 years, 30 years are in fact the same. And so you don't have to pick. So what I'm saying is that the road to B goes through A or the road to A goes through B and we've falsely put them at a T-junction when in actual fact they're on a straight line. Yeah, and, and, that, and that also brings about um, the fact that that um, almost false choice exists has meant that there are some um, what I would consider to be maladaptive behaviours and, and for that matter, um, morally questionable policies that have been implemented into the sports system. An example, the most obvious example, one that I rail against regularly, being that you have various sports, um, most notably football, whereby it has become commonplace to have selective processes for children as young as six or seven, um, where they're embraced into academies and deemed as being suitable for selection to an academy identified that they have words like elite associated with them six-year-old children which we all know is nonsensical and yet that's commonplace and the rationale is that if we don't get them on the track early they're never going to achieve full potential so this false binary persists Mm. um and 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 then all of the other maladaptive maladaptive sort of practices go alongside all that. And they're not the only example of that. We're now also beginning to see, well, in fact, we're seeing, I say beginning to see, we have seen and are now seeing more org- sports uh, or sports organizations, the most obvious and most recent example being gymnastics, where you see young children essentially dehumanized um, commodified, um, uh, often physically abused, often ritually humiliated. Why? Uh, because of a cultural, a cultural issue, not necessarily because of any um, individuals um, or, or a group of individuals necessarily. I mean, it, 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 there might be some bad actors there, but it's not necessarily because people are willfully doing this because they've gone into the industry to j- deliberately physically abuse children. That's not what they're there for. It's just become culturally normalized and culturally accepted that that's the, you need to do that to achieve this. Mm. And so there's, got, there's, there's already, if you like, a societal question beginning to be raised about, what is what are we doing this for? What we're arguing is actually that is creating that whole landscape. And so actually, in many ways, we need to create a reappraisal about what the children's sport experience should be. But it doesn't have to come at the cost of whatever outcomes you imagine are going to be important. In many ways, it will drive those things. So it's a very, a very strange landscape we're in. But people within that are so vulnerable to, to, to novel ideas that are sold to them and, I, and a bold underline sold because usually there's a book or a campaign that needs, needs to be bought. <laughs> there's this exchange of money. And it also responds to incentives. I remember the one time you and I spoke and I, I wish I could remember the conversation better, but it wasn't an occasion that one would expect to remember because it was at the it was at the year-end England rugby dinner after they played the Wallabies at Trickenham. I don't know if you remember that evening. And we were at that dinner and around the table late, I mean, it was, it was near, nearly closing time. And you were explaining how that football system develops in response to incentives. Because these mega clubs have got millions to spend. 
And the opportunity cost of failing to identify a talented player is so large that they would rather waste the money on buying players who do fail because they don't want to miss the one who'll succeed, if that makes sense. And so it creates this, it creates this unbelievably inefficient youth talent development system because they are in a competitive market. And if I, Manchester United, miss the player and Manchester City picks him up, that's catastrophic for me. And, and that's, that seems to me to be the primary problem is that adults have created incentives that drive these bad behaviors. Well, yeah, adults have, but then at the same time, I mean, you know, when you look at it from a macroeconomic perspective, you see this in other walks of life. So if you look at, I know this will sound like it's a little bit of a tangent, but if you look at like the perversion of and the sort of tribal nature of most politics in Western societies now, a lot of that is driven by perverse incentives mm. through, for example, communication mediums such as social media sites, creating sort of, you know, kind of binary tribal algorithmic driven information spaces whereby people are only get, essentially getting information about stuff that they agree with. That in itself then drives this perverse incentive whereby individuals are using outrage as a means by which to sort of get more and more eyeballs on their sites and therefore drive more and more clicks into their YouTube channel or wherever it might be it's really really bizarre situation right so now in, in a similar space in the sports landscape you've got the same sorts of sort of capitalism or uh, actually more like hyper capitalism incentive in place whereby it's almost like this whole sort of zero-sum game whereby you know one one organization's gain is another organization's net loss and it's permeated so much of the sports policy making even to the point of my own organization for several years um, until relatively recently, you know, we were using the language of the customer. We were using the language and, and we would actually almost place sports bodies in competition with each other for funding. And how would we do that? By using metrics such as if you drive participation numbers upwards, you are seen to be doing well and future funding could be conditional or increased funding. If numbers go down, then you're, you're failing as an organization and funding would be reduced. Well, part of the problem with that is then you're not going to get collaborations between organizations. Rugby union and rugby league are not going to work together, even though ostensibly their athletes could well easily transfer from one to the other because one organization's loss is another one's gain and there's funding attached to that. So when you then, if you place those a world with those kinds of incentives in place and then you put human beings and children in the middle, the commodification side of things just becomes almost like a natural byproduct of that. Yeah, um, yeah, and this yeah. is the this is the societal reappraisal that's taking place. I mean, I don't want to get all political and, and all that sort of stuff, but I think people are now beginning to question, what are we doing this all for? <laughs> I mean, that, that's that, that, there's two parts to that incentive question. This is one of the questions I wanted to ask you. Yes, there are the incentives from these big clubs going with big money, but there's also a part of it which which is how do you incentivize young people to take up sport if the end result is not being good at it or being in a team? So in other words, how do you make sport fun and not competitive to encourage participation? And, and sorry, this is where, just to, to preface your answer, Stuart, this is where actually it's this, you do the same thing. You don't. These two are not at odds with one another, in my in my opinion, and I think you were alluding to that earlier, Stuart. So maybe now we can actually use that to to actually explain to listeners what we meant earlier when we spoke about these practices. Um, yeah. So just to to sort of I guess pick up on on Mike's point. Um, so, well, so one of the things we have at Sport England is a talent strategy, and the talent strategy 
has two broad goals. Inclusion, talent inclusion, which seems oxymoronic often when you talk to people about talent and inclusion. They don't seem like to be naturally paired up. And progression is the other one. And we believe that the more inclusive your talent system is, the more the better progression athletes make. Now, this is based on consensus amongst those in organizations who we spoke to when designing the plan. And it's similar, I suppose, in many ways, Ross, to the talent consensus piece of work that we did when we were in rugby that you were involved with, with other experts. Right. So the, 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 the most obvious example is if you take, um, using the example of the football one, but, but, but there's other sports that do this. this, this assumption that we need to have increased training loads for young people um, in order to maximize their potential to progress and to then go on to whatever the natural, the, whatever, the, um, uh, whatever the goal might be, whether it's professionalism or elite or whatever it might be. So this is the assumption that we need to have the, tr- the training load right. And the problem with that is that each sport suggests a certain training, training load. So they might overtly express a desire to um, overtly express a desire, for example, for children to be able to do multiple sports. But the reality is that the training lows that they put in place mean that other sports have to be discarded far earlier than they should. So single sport athletes, single sport athlete becomes now or less than less than less than, you know, multi-sport athlete thing of the past for a lot of children. Um, and likewise, when you say training load, what you often also also comes alongside with that is travel to the venue where the training takes place. So there's a time cost, which comes at a cost of other activities or other forms of social engagement or schooling or whatever. And automatically, you are required to have the means as a child by which to be able to get to the venue. Therefore, you then immediately price a whole load of individuals who could, for whatever math, who could just as easily be part of a talent pool. So these exclusive practices brought about by this artificial notion of a training load at a training venue with a so-called better coach or better leader of that activity automatically takes a whole raft of young people who are either socially or economically, um, you know, kind of uh, removed from that as a possibility. And as in such, you just naturally reduce your talent pool, which doesn't make any sense because very few, there's, there's hardly any sports I know out there who would tell you that their talent pool is large enough. So what they, what we end up doing then is actually then having an athlete pool that is naturally sort of, specified down to a group of young people from a particular social class in the main which is actually which actually works against what the goals are so that's an example of the sort of practices that take place that are actually kind of almost working against uh what we're trying to do so i'm interested i mean you you say that's the problem what what is then sport england's solution to that i mean how do you overcome that you're saying by having two different pools of athletes, one of which is a talent identification stream versus a participation stream? Well, one of the things to do is to stop the artificiality, as Ross alluded to earlier on, the artificial notion that you have these two different streams, because the reality is they're integrated from the outset. So in a club environment, 
you know, I'm, I work as a coach in a club environment in a, in a couple of different sports. I've got young people who are all at different stages of development. I run an under 14s boys group, some of which the children are relatively new to the sport, still learning. Some have been doing it for a, for a number of years and quite experienced and have a different level of ability. Equally, I'm juggling different levels of physical maturation. I've got boys in body, 14 year old boys in bodies of 16 year olds and 14 year old boys in bodies of 12 year olds. I'm also juggling the emotional and psychological dimension of that as well which is extremely challenging because they've all got all these different things and i've also got to juggle parental engagement parental support schooling stuff other sports they do and trying to make all that fit together as well so it's quite a difficult role for a volunteer um um and and you know and i'm fortunate enough to work in this space you know if you haven't necessarily got that background then and then it's even more difficult and even more challenging and the support systems aren't necessarily there for those individuals however it's an integrated landscape in that club where there are people developing now in theory the way the sports system works is that i have to send them off to some other environment like a county or whatever it might be so that they can progress in the the pathway well the reality is that very very few sports pathways and i used to design these pathways so i've had to come to this realization the hard way very very few of them actually do actually work because the kids in the pathway rarely are the kids who actually progress anyway so the reality is we shouldn't have this artificiality what we should have is a more integrated talent development system um so that we don't have to make these decisions ross talked about this it really opened my eyes to this years ago when he said Often it's an economic decision. You know, talent pathways can only accommodate so many. So you're trying to make it as efficient and as effective you can with the limited resources that you've got. So you have to narrow the numbers down. It's artificial. You don't need to. You can actually make a more integrated community sports system that actually fosters and nurtures the development of talent if you put the right resources into it. Now, again, that's in its own issue. What are the right resources? But I believe that resources are channeled inappropriately. They're channeled towards these pathways rather than channels towards the support in the integrated community space. So my argument would be we should have community sports systems whereby we're actually fostering and nurturing this. And some sports do this brilliantly already. Boxing is a really good example and many of the martial arts. The clubs are in many of the communities that suffer some of the worst economic disadvantage and social social deprivation. Why is that? Well, actually, that's the hunting ground. And young people in those in those environments are often driven towards things like boxing. But then as a result of that, what you then have is a community sports hub that isn't necessarily about talent development, but it does develop talent. Um, um, and it's, it's, so the talent is almost like a byproduct of creating a community sports hub that is almost like where the young, where the coaches within those environments are almost like social change makers. They're, they're creating a different fabric for young people within these, these societies. So you're getting so many other brilliant social outcomes as a byproduct of the fact that you're also then developing young people's potential. And that's a really good model that many could learn from. Isn't this isn't the key to that though, Stuart? That the the pathways you're talking about as artificial, and the ones like that I alluded to, where you have you have bottlenecks because from primary school into secondary or senior school, you have a bottleneck. You can't take everyone, and then from senior school to under sixteen, eighteen club, and so on. At every point, you have to filter out. Those don't those pathways exist as the solution to a problem, and the problem is performance. So. 
Isn't the root cause the competitive nature of junior sport that's created that as an artifact? Because how do you get a sport to buy into the fact that it can do without one of its players twice a week because that player should be doing a couple of other things? You spoke earlier about how every sport will say, this is our recommended training load. What you're effectively asking them to do is to split that training load between three sports. But now... You've got a coach at a, at a 14-year-old rugby team and he's saying, no, 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 John's not going to go and play tennis today because John is my star player and I've got a big game against a rival on Saturday. John will be at rugby practice. And so the, the people are ultimately making these mistakes because they overvalue the outcome. Yeah, I agree. And, and what you're speaking to there, Ross, is, is something that I'm very passionate about, which I think is often, often overlooked, which is the uh, environmental influences on coach teacher parent behavior so uh i when i you know in in our engagement with coaches when we looked at the development of coaching strategies one of the things the stories that we begin to hear uh are of coaches who feel powerless to do anything against this prevailing dominant sort of hyper competitive paradigm Mm -hmm. so so like you say um I'm not anti-competition because one of the beautiful things about sports is the opportunity to compete. What I am is I'm anti what competition has become, as in it's become the be-all and end-all, the end in itself, as opposed to what we should value from competition. So, you know, I talk about this a lot, the Greek definition, the idea of coming together to improve and struggle together to get better. Um, you know, it's a it's quite a militaristic ideal, but but you know, it's what the the Olympic ideal is 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 at least founded on. But competition for young people now has become like a zero sum game, which is why you often see in social media clubs or teams celebrating their twenty five nil win. That's not competitive. That's not doing anybody any good. Least of whom the ones who won twenty five nil. So what you know when people talk about this, this sort of like moral outrage when they see these sorts of things. In reality, what they're asking for is a reappraisal of like what do we value from from sporting experiences, and actually what we should be valuing is the opportunity for young people to develop, growth, grow, learn, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. In fact, I, I was um, I recently, in fact, just this morning before I came on here, tweeted a, um, a piece of research that's come out from Sheffield Hallam, led by uh, Keith Davids and Martin Rothwell. And they talk about the fact that there is this sort of deterministic notion of sport that's become pretty prevalent. And the, the quote that I tweeted was that sort of this sort of deterministic view of human behavior has promoted a genocentric view of athlete learning and development that has been criticized for objectifying athletes' bodies and overemphasizing the physiological, anthropometric, genetic, and psychological profiling that seeks to dominate debates on the foundations of athletic perfor- for athletic performance. Um, wordy quote, I'm sorry. But, um, <laughs> but it, what I'm talking about there, though, is, is, is a little bit towards that thing. They're, what they're saying is we all know, also need to consider the environmental influences and constraints that that people who are essentially decision makers in the moment need to make. And your point is a really good one. I've got a big game this weekend and the league is all important because everybody believes the league is all important. The kids have been enculturated to believe that the league is all important. The parents think the league is all important. My value and worth as a coach is defined by where we come in the league. Therefore, you're not going to tennis this week because I need you to come and play for me. And kids have to make choices about what they do. And, uh, Right. And I dare say many people listening to this are parents of kids who are in this situation. 
And I have enormous sympathy for them because even if they take your words to heart and they go away from this podcast with an understanding that they need to change the meaning of competition, they need to encourage their kids to play as many sports and to play as much as possible as opposed to train to win at the age of 11 or 12. How do they do that when the environment, everything against them is pushing the other direction? It, it's... it's uh, it, it must be it must be enormously disheartening because if they do the right thing, their child is potentially going to be rejected by the system, which is doing the wrong thing. Exactly that, and that that is like the huge dilemma that people face, and I've I have experienced that myself mm. because I chose, uh, or well partly chose and partly with with the dialogue with with my son i chose to take my son out of uh, a talent pathway because i felt it was not doing him any good and it came at a cost of the other sports that he was doing so for example it's a summer sport cricket but their talent pathway activity happens in the winter which meant then we'd have to sacrifice the other winter activities he was doing. And at that point, he was doing both football, he was doing football, hockey and rugby. <laughs> so something's got to give. Mm. So you have to make a choice to take your child out of the talent system. Now, the problem then is he comes along in the summer and all his friends have got all the tops. And he thinks, hang on, I'm missing out. Now, it's an active choice because of we want to have a rich experience. But I know other parents, I wrote a blog, blog post about this not long ago entitled The Lamentable Lemmings of Talent Development, which is the, the, I've had parents in the football realm say, oh, he's got, he's got, it is usually he, sadly, but he's got trials at such and such a club. If I'm honest, I hope he doesn't get in because if he does, we're, doing, we're going there three days a week and it's an hour away. I don't know how we're going to juggle it. I don't know about, I've got to worry about my other children and I'm not sure it's that good for him. But they don't feel like they've got any other choice because otherwise their child might lose out. And, it, and you have to be a very brave individual to make that call. And I've had kitchen table conversations with my, my wife about this saying, are you sure we're doing the right thing? And the honest answer is, I, I'm not sure. But I feel knowing what I know that, We've got to make an active choice about some of these things for his well-being and for everybody else's. Yeah. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Yeah. Maybe we could just take a step back because this is a question I'd like to ask both of you and you've kind of skimmed around it a little bit. So we've done this interview with David Epstein, the author, a little bit about this as well. So it's just clarified a bit. Are you both saying that talent, particularly amongst youngsters, requires a multidisciplinary approach? In other words, being a generalist before you become a specialist. And that's why there is this... But that's why you're talking about kids being able to do multiple sports instead of being focused on one at a very early age. I mean, Stuart, maybe just maybe you can start with that. I mean, is is that is that really the premise? To a degree, um, yeah, I would I would say that. Um, and there is, 
I mean, there's a body of, you know, there's a body of research that suggests that engaging in multiple activities not only has benefits for long-term engagement, et cetera, et cetera, but also has benefits for the sport that you eventually choose to specialize in. So there is a rationale based there. I think that just is a logical perspective as well, because until you, you, until you go through your process of maturation and development, et cetera, et cetera, you don't necessarily know what sporting activities are necessary. You, you may or may not be most suited to if becoming the best at that activity is one of the things you're looking for, which is one of the reasons you've seen programs like talent transfer programs where people progress through one route, but then for whatever reason, find that they're not quite able to go to the next level, but transfer to another activity and then can progress even further. So there is that rationale to be made there. Um, but I'm not necessarily saying that you have to do multi-sport because actually, interestingly enough, Joe Baker, his PhD students has come out with some really interesting findings of late to suggest that the specialization narrative, or let's call it the anti-specialization narrative, isn't necessarily as rock solid in terms of its basis as as people think. Um, you know, the claims that sport broad broad specialization, as in sorry, um, generalized activities, isn't necessarily the issue. Um, uh, you know, because there are there are obvious examples that David will have written about where people who have specialized early do make it to elite elite rank so it's not a very very simple idea so i wouldn't ever want to just say general generalizing before specializing is better than specializing early because there are examples however i would say broadly speaking that would work but i would also say if we didn't just imagine mike if we didn't have this kind of hyper-organized sports system, adultified sports system created in the images of, of adults, whereby children were forced to make these choices. And actually we had far more informal activity, the kind of activity that is played in uh, less well-developed nations, for example, you know, the informal street type activity, more recreational activity where children get a lot more freedom and opportunities to make their own rules and create and this, that and the other. If that was more the norm in Western society, and again, this is a utopian vision, children would be able to just flex across different sports all the time anyway. And actually, they would get that natural generalization, natural variation, and they may even be able to combine that with a specialization model. So, so I, th I guess the view is that or the argument I'm trying to make is at the moment that just isn't really an active choice for children uh, and it's becoming less of an active choice and actually that's a little bit lamentable and potentially potentially damaging. Yeah. So I, I wish there was a simpler answer to your question, but broadly speaking, am I kind of sort of saying yes and no? Yeah, well, see, I think one of the things that has happened, and, and again, this goes back to how Stuart and I even know each other, is that the, the whole field has, has oscillated or swung from one position to the next under the pressure of well-packaged information. And so now I'm thinking of like Malcolm Gladwell writes a book and all of a sudden people say 10,000 hours and how do you get 10,000 hours by the time you're 22 is you start at the age of nine and you do two hours a day, five days a week. It doesn't work otherwise. So, so, so the, 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 the requirement for 10,000 hours sets the behavior and that behavior then is subsequently revealed by the next author to maybe be suboptimal. And there are now, as Stuart said, there are a number of papers that have suggested that those who diversify younger and do more sports 
have a better chance of success than those who specialize early. I, I do worry about that being almost an artifact of the system because, see, these things are these things are products of the environment that produces them. So we, we mm. to some extent, set up a circular argument. But what Stuart says is true. If you're a parent with great intentions for your child, why would you commit to one sport at the age of 11 or 12? You would actually want them to keep their options open for as long as possible. Now, you can come up with half a dozen analogies to, to illustrate that. But if you were buying shares, for instance, why would you spend your entire salary on buying one company's shares? Of course you wouldn't. You would diversify and you'd split well, your... I, I, I guess parents look at little Jimmy who's made the under six or the under 11 soccer team and he think they think, well, he's, he can on the, during the holidays he can go to a soccer camp and maybe he'll become the next, you know... Manchester United striker so there's and then they, right. they put their hopes in in the early specialization and they that read, their kid will become a, become a professional and they read articles about someone who did it that way and they yeah. think this is the way to do it and that's the problem is people are so vulnerable to stories in this space and they try and follow the pattern but what they don't always think about and, and what people like Stuart are fighting is is if you send Jimmy away to that soccer camp it means that he's not going to do the three or four other things he might have done and what if one of those three or four things was the thing he should have focused on for sure so the probability of success with early commitment is so low that it actually makes very little sense to pursue and so you're better off trying to keep your options wider and open. But the problem then, and this comes back to what Stuart ended on, is that you need the system to have revolving doors all along the journey. You need to be able to go in at any point. And the problem is the system doesn't. It's got locked doors. Yeah. And so the moment you're out that, that room, you, you're out. Yeah. And it needs to be able to absorb you back in. And that's the thing we're trying to fix. I mean, is, Stuart, is there not just a way of, you know, going at, you know, national level and saying, right, anything under 13 is therefore non-competitive and sport is designed to be non-competitive below a certain age group. I mean, is there, a, is there an age group that you can specify that you would recommend as being the non-competitive and below age group? Um, well, so it, it's really interesting. Um, uh, prematuration is your ideal, which obviously is difficult, isn't it? Because prematuration for some kids is... Uh, sorry, post sorry, post maturation. Sorry, post maturation for some kids is fifteen, in my case, and then in other, in other for other kids it's twelve, eleven. You know, so that's obviously difficult to do when you've got competition system based on chronological age bandings, uh, which is another debate for another day, which don't even get me started on. Um, uh, and and of course, so so those are major challenges in terms of you know, what is the optimal. Um, so what we had to do when we were um, Funnily enough, you know, I, thought, I mentioned it earlier on, just linking to what Ross was saying about some of the, why are people susceptible to stories? Um, partly it's because, you know, popular science books resonate and good storytellers get, get, get messages across. But prior to, um, I'll be totally honest with you, prior to um, Gladwell's book coming out, the whole sports system in the UK got absolutely kind of locked into uh, a notion called long-term athlete development, which was postulated by, in the main, Istvan Bayi. Um, and uh, what Istvan originally, you know, kind of put to put forward in that was it said it was essentially a kind of a, a, a cobbling together. I'm being a bit unfair, maybe, but a cobbling together of a range of different areas of science taking that on board and packaging it together into sort of a singular vision of what we might do in terms of long-term development. So it had notions of 
notions of sort of uh, anti-specialization in there. Um, it had notions of de uh, optimal development windows for things like skill, physiological development windows based on sort of general maturation patterns. It had, uh, you know, this sort of linear staging of sort of training and development with like names like learning to train, training to train, et cetera, et cetera. It had the 10,000 hours in there. It had a range of different factors together, right? And it was compelling, particularly if you're a sports system builder, as I was at the time, who had read some of this stuff, but was by no means, you know, kind of uh, anywhere near uh, knowledgeable enough to be able to understand some of the scientific basis of these things. But the whole package itself seemed plausible and seemed much, much better than where we currently were. It also, in lots of ways, had a potential real benefit that what it brought together was the world of participation and the world of talent development, actually, because it was about, right, you know, later, later specialization required sports environments to be far better, club environments to be far better than just doing everything through these pathways. So there's a lot of attraction to it. It's then the science then sort of catches up a little bit and then it becomes clear that many of the elements in there maybe aren't quite as well-founded as they originally were argued argued for. And this is often what happens in the world of science, isn't it? You know, you come up with a hypothesis or a theory and then people very rapidly debunk it all. Um, now, the problem then when you're a policymaker or a system builder is where do you hang your hat? You know, in a world where human development science changes on a daily, weekly basis. So what you often find then is that sort of um, narratives or, or, or things that are sort of easily understood that people can kind of resonate with and use as a basis to bring about system change become powerful. They become useful levers for change. They become a means by which to, to do so. I know I went out there talking to coaches about the 10,000 hour rule. I, I know I went out there talking, you know, using stuff like David's book and, and Daniel Coyle's stuff and taking stuff from there and actually articulating it to others who won't have looked at that, con that content um, as a means by which to sort of change practice and all those sorts of things. I look back now and think probably making a few assertions that probably don't necessarily stand up as well as they could. But to circle back to your point about how do you change things and how do you make, make this happen, it's, it's actually a really difficult thing because there's also a huge polarization to some of this. So I would dearly, Mike, love to be able to say, right, sports organizations, we know all this stuff, prematuration is a complete and utter waste of time. I would love to be able to make a, a mandated policy that basically said, we will have free play and recreation for children until the age of X. But the problem you will have there is half of the country would literally be up in arms and describe that as, um, you know, kind of tree-hugging liberalism in action. <laughs> and the other half would be saying, you know, we need competition and we need, because otherwise, how can kids ever compete in the world? And I have been, I, and I'm only saying that because I've actually physically been in that debate myself when trying to bring about a change of policy working in rugby. So when you're in that situation and you're in the court of public opinion, Often, what you find is people take the safe route, so they go down the middle. We did that with our consensus statement at England Rugby. You know, we spent a good amount of money building a consensus of scientists, lay people, an expert panel to say, what is it we can say about the world of talent development? Where do we come out? Around about 13, Mike. So actually, to be fair, rugby took the hard decision. They said, we're not going to, I think fact, they went to 14, I think. We're not going to start our pathway activity until 14 which is a brave decision yeah 
So no. we're going to do all the other stuff in the community sport realm, and then we will begin to do our pathway out to when, because it because that's roughly at the point of post maturation. No, so 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 just on that because because that's the one I was involved in, and I must tell you, they I don't know how you organised it, but that that meeting I I presented at that meeting. It was held at the Royal Society in London. Remember. And there was that stained glass window as he walked up the stairs. This is the same place Darwin presented evolution when he came <laughs> back from the Beagle. That's how, I mean, this was unbelievable. What a, what a privilege. And there was a stained glass window and it, it had the Latin inscription nullis in verbia, which means take nobody's word for it. And I remember always thinking ever since that when I offer opinions on this issue, I sh people should be mindful of that. But the thing about it was, I remember when you announced that you would no longer start the pathway below 14. I had visions of other sports rubbing their hands with glee because now there were resources that were available to them. That's the problem. So it's almost like you can imagine sports talent systems. It's like the gold rush from the, what was it, 1920s. Everyone was trying to stake out a piece of land. And if you didn't stake out your land, someone else was going to get it. And the moment rugby says, we're not going to pick you into our pathways until you're 14 or older, Football and many other sports that prize the same physical attributes are going to say, well, we'll pick you at 13 because now you're available to us. And I don't know if you saw that happen, Stuart, or is that just an imagined problem? Well, we, we, it, it would be hard for us to know if it happened or not. What we did see, because obviously it would have been evident, it's hard to know if someone leaves your system or doesn't enter your system because they aren't allowed to enter your system and they went elsewhere. What we did see though, Ross, was the opposite happening whereby because the pathway started later, we started to pick up kids from other sports who'd been jettisoned by their early engagement pathway transfer over to us. And the opportunity was created as a means by which that, so I don't, that was not definitely not an intended consequence. It was an unintended consequence, but one that we actually, we rubbed our hands with because what we were getting was athletes who were disenchanted with their experience in other sport coming into ours with a far greater open idea, many of whom I have to say were really quite exciting prospects. And in actual fact, I think there's a couple in, in the elite, in elite programs now. Now, how many did we lose as a result of that? Who would know? And and that was a, I think that was a risk that was discussed at the time. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, I think the thing is it comes down. I mean, to, in very simple terms, to at that level, to about what ethics are. You know, what what are the ethics and the and the duty of care for young athletes? Now we can talk about who is doing right and who is doing wrong. But so I mean, when you look at that putting an under six player into a competitive environment and letting them you know be competitive and winning is everything. There, there's obviously there's a, as you as you suggested there's a there's almost a neglect and an abuse of children at their level. I mean, those are strong words, but is that is that what you mean by that? By putting those young kids into their competitive environments, so it's almost a abuse of their youngness. Uh, I I would argue that. Um, I look back, you know, we all do this, don't we? I look back at my childhood with a lot of fondness. I was very fortunate that because my father worked abroad and we went with him that I spent time in Africa, I spent time in, in Papua New Guinea, and I had an opportunity to have a very outdoor childhood that involved an awful lot of free play um, and, and a lot of, you know, kind of opportunities for exploration and discovery and all those sorts of things. So I look at that with, but even when I came back to the UK, still very much, very much the same. Um, and I look now at, you know, society has obviously changed. There's uh, sadly, you know, there's a piece of research I think it's done about the generational radius from the home and how far children were allowed to roam from the home. And it's 
really quite small now. And that's partly due to a range of different factors. But free play has now become something that is, you know, a very, very scarce commodity for children, you know, with all of the other elements that, that, that the social dynamics and things like that that go alongside it. And as a result of that, what it's been replaced by is hyper-organized, you know, kind of adult-led uh, sport and physical activity experiences usually driven towards the outcomes of some form of artificial com- competition construct. And as a result of that, I, I, I question whether children are getting the kind of experiences that they could have that play brings, you know, um, and, and all that sort of stuff. I also question if they particularly enter into some of these early pathway engagement activities and, you know, necessarily then spend several hours sitting in cars, you know, what is that coming at the cost of, you know, it could be coming at the cost of also, I mean, I'll just talk about physical activity, you know, uh, you know, comes at the cost of dance. It comes at the cost of drawing. It comes at the cost of being goofy, you know, all sorts. (laughs) of things that children no longer get the chance to do so there's obviously a cost to that you know how big that cost is and all that sort of stuff i don't know um but i i just genuinely think that there needs to be a little bit of a societal reappraisal about how the role sport and physical activity should play in children's lives and i'm really worried about what could happen if we don't address it so what do you i mean for you as head of coaching and obviously dealing with a lot of sports are there guidelines that you send out to the coaches that support that and give them guidelines in terms of how to deal and treat and keep children within the system? Well, that's that's funny you should mention that, Mike. That's an area of work that I'm heavily involved with um, at the moment. Uh, one of the things when I came into the post, uh, there was an original vision for coaching a number of years ago uh, called the UK Coaching Framework, which sort of started a process of looking at how we could properly systematize and support the development of coaches. Some of it worked, some of it didn't. One of the areas that I was really, I think is really lamentable is we had a, a goal to make coaching a professionally regulated vocation and that never materialized. So that's an area of work that's ongoing about how can we do that in a hybrid volunteer paid workforce it's quite a challenging dimension and sorry yeah. that's Stuart you'd want to do that so that you can make people accountable is that right because at the moment all you can really do is recommend and advise but you, you can never enforce is that the main point it's it's one of the reasons yes uh, one of the reasons is to be able to regulate it but we yeah. use this term right touch regulation so if you have got bad actors what's the process to define that they are bad actors and then what sanctions should be put in place in that case and that has a double edge by the way because you know you sometimes get accusations made towards organizations that are to an individual that's unfounded so they need to be protected from that as well so actually creating the professional standards required for an organ for an, for an individual to operate against is part of that and that's that's been done and then the regulatory frameworks associated with that is on is, is the other but actually there's another side to this that i prefer to talk about ross which is it's partly about regulation but it's actually part of the one of the reasons why sometimes some of these practices take place is actually because there's not effective support mechanisms in place so there isn't appropriate supervision in the world of medicine the world of science you know you have yeah it's natural to have to have appropriate supervision it's natural for individuals to continuously progress and develop that's not the norm in coaching people get qualified and they don't continue so actually we want to create a new culture whereby individuals who are 
individuals are sort of not not just compelled but also encouraged and enth and are enthused by continuous learning and development are recognized for that and then you know people who are looking to take the services of those individuals can make informed choices about how people you know how committed they are to their sort of continuous professional development mm -hmm. so there's a double-edged sword to this there's a positive message and a regulatory one but then on the other side of it mike what you were talking about children is um we have brought together a range of stakeholder organizations and have been working with them for the last four years sorry not four years last two and a half years to do that almost a little bit like that consensus building activity around what do we need to do and the reason we're doing it is going back to that environmental issue which is how can we help coaches on the ground to almost have a new narrative uh, for them to align to or even a new philosophy or set of ethics that they can do what we've actually done is evoked the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which is not law in England. Um, it's it's a guidance document. It's 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 part of it's law in other Scandinavian countries and other parts of Europe. It's not here, but to take some of the notions of rights and apply them to, um, you know, kind of how a children's a, a child's experience could be dis be created, which then has knock-on associations with the way coaches might behave and what we want to try and do is over a period of time build a movement of, of both practitioners and policy makers and system builders who are aligned to this new notion of, of, of a child's experience based on rights the right to play the right to have their voices heard the right for it the right of expression the right of belonging and freedom um and then doing all those things, we can build those to create this new argue, this new idea. And then what we want to do is almost create it as a new social movement where those who are really aligned to that ideal can champion it and talk to others about it. And in so we can build this. So it's a, it's a way of sort of building it from the ground up rather than any kind of policy mandate. Because what we found historically is policy mandates almost work in the opposite way. Yeah, but as you say, it's difficult to lay down guidelines around this until you've discovered what the actual reaction from all the different people involved are. I mean, is it, I mean, just, I mean, just practically, if you had to look at what you're looking at now in terms of your job, what would you suggest in that space? In other words, what would you suggest to somebody like you, you've got a, you've got, you're, you're a father, you've made a decision about your, your, your child's participation in sport. What would you say to parents of children who are showing promise or participating in sport at the at under age under 15 for instance what what's what's your advice to them well uh, a couple of things really one is um uh listen to your podcast obviously because <laughs> you know you get lots of good information about uh, about the science and the ethics of these sorts of things trust their instincts a little um you know i think sometimes people are working against their own instincts because they feel as if they 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 oughtn't to uh, there is a lot of information out there now that's accessible. It's not, you know, we don't have to delve in through the scientific papers. There's a lot of accessible information that you can be able to sort of tap into. And then I suppose the other thing that um, the other thing that people should should do, in my view, is to be patient. There isn't a rush, and 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 be wary of going back to what uh, uh, what Ross was saying about the, you know, the question everything. Be wary of people suggesting to you. Uh, that there is this rush, you know, there, there is a huge race to the bottom in youth sport, no doubt about it, but just be wary of that. Um, and actually, so, you know, just and ask yourself the question, you know, do you want your children to experience, to have a great experience? 
and then or not and you know i've had to be very patient with my my children to the point where my wife's questioned me shouldn't knowing what you know and you doing all this coaching shouldn't they be better than they are by now look at them <laughs> in comparison to them and that's an interesting uh, over the kitchen table discussion um but actually funnily enough by being patient and providing a lot of experiences not what i'm now beginning to see is at least certainly a little bit older beginning to make some active choices about his participation some active choices about his levels of engagement and some progress now obviously he's not inside these pathways at the moment he's been missed out by those pathways but that's not the be all and end all as far as i'm concerned because i'm as happy with him playing sport for the rest of his life as i would be for him representing the country or playing at some sort of elite level but potentially has he missed out on playing for his country because of your decision to pull him out of those pathways no he's too young to have missed out you don't know that yet <laughs> is that not the risk though the honest answer is the honest answer is i would never know but that, that that's the risk though isn't it well yeah but i the, i thought the the opposite risk was greater yeah. and it's at the consequence of my my future relationship with him so that was the greater risk. And, and also, which direction do you drive and push him in? You don't know. So, so you're, actually, you're actually taking a one in five chance with a massive potential to backfire as opposed to let the chips fall where they fall. And he can still, it's, okay, it's not true to say it's never too late. At some point, it'll be too late. But then, then it probably wasn't meant to be, I would suspect. And that sounds fatalistic for a scientist, but... I think it's likely the truth. And then and then I think I was going to ask you advice to an athlete, but I think the advice you've just given in response to Mike's question about parents is pretty much the same thing the athlete needs to do. Follow their instincts, enjoy, don't rush it, be patient, explore, find what you're passionate about, sample as widely as you can, try and work within the system, I guess. Is there anything else the athlete would have to know and do? Yeah, I mean, one of the challenges I think for kids, Ross, we have to understand is is agency. Yeah. They're not yeah. always the agents of their own lives. Mm. And and I would say um, if there was an advice for a, let's say, an aspiring athlete in their, say, middle teens who maybe are beginning to start to make some choices, then I would say that would be true for those. But if, you're, if the kids are younger, then it's much harder because it's harder for them to make informed choices. But certainly those aspiring athletes – you know, definitely, you know, be passionate. I think almost like follow their passion to a certain extent. Yeah. And then the last question I was going to ask is to coaches. So so there are going to be a number of people listening to this who are among those majority volunteer coaches. They stand on the field twice a week because they're passionate about the sport. And they are most often, I think, genuinely invested in the general well-being of the children who are under their care. But they are also incentivized potentially to perform because if they coach teams that perform well maybe that volunteer job becomes actually a little paid job on the side and they are therefore conflicted by that environment we spoke about so if you could leave them with one or two things that would be most handy well, well again i think one of the things for them to do is to is to genuinely have a, a think about who they want to be and what their almost like philosophical and ethical underpinning is. You know, don't I, I talk about philosophy a lot. It's a particular interest of mine, et cetera. But think think about it from that perspective. You know, think about what 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 their framework is um, and the environment that they want to create. So, for example, I made an active choice sort of some time ago that you know I wanted to develop young people and to become the best sort of children's coach I could. You know, I made loads of mistakes along the way, um, but 
I have been sort of honing my craft down towards a set, a set of ideals that I think are quite important. You know, one of them, for example, is with sort of teenagers who are committed to improvement and are making an active choice towards committing to improvement, that we might create an environment that's sort of fairly high challenge, high support, that kind of stuff. But for younger younger children, the environment must be much more about fun, enjoyment, exp, you know, having a great experience, being with friends, creating belonging and connectivity, and being, you know, and, under, and, and associating with the activity as being part of a, a wider social dynamic. So understanding your audience group is absolutely critical, and then making a commitment to a set of ideals that become the basis of the way you operate. And staying fairly true to those ideals is is really important. I think a bit like you said earlier, Ross, people tend to get a little bit attracted by the latest fad and go, oh, we're going to do that now and we're going to do that now. And it means you've got no roots. So explore your own philosophical roots, decide what's important for you and then stay tr- stay fairly, fairly true to that. So Armstrong, I know we're going to have a couple of more, a couple more um, opportunities to talk to you specifically around coaches and not necessarily the kids side of things, as we've discussed on this podcast. I know you've done, I think, your master's on cheating in sports. So I'm pretty determined we'd like to do a, a follow up podcast on that because I know you listened to our first episode of that. But uh, just just some final thoughts. If, if is a is a utopian view of this that if you had to build something from the ground up that you would build a system that is capable of taking on all these challenges and making them work better if you had to start from ground zero? Uh, Is there a utopian vision? Um, I guess there must be. I find it hard sometimes (laughs) to articulate it because of the system that we operate within. Uh, I would love, I'd love to just, I would love to see a, a change in the narrative associated with children's sport in particular, which focused more about, I mean, one of the sort of terms that we're starting to knock around is this idea of play their way. And this idea of bringing play and playfulness back to the youth sport uh, experience, not as a means by which to in any way lose sight of any potential future future you know future progress but we actually genuinely believe that play powers performance as well so it's like the it's the perfect model i describe it as uh it's like a broccoli burger you know you want something nutritious and tasty at the same time you know my my son's not going to eat any broccoli uh because he's not a fan of it but if i can make it if we can put it inside like a pasta sauce he'll just hoover it away so i'm trying to design the uh, the, the kind of policy and coaching and youth experience that is essentially the equivalent of a broccoli burger. Well, there you have it. Great advice for whether you're a parent or a coach or anybody else involved in youth sports and children's sport. I think it's uh, some good tips there from Stuart. Stuart, thank you very much for your time. Uh, we look forward to speaking to you again sometime in the future. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? 
They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 